the text for this morning is the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. Text is on screen. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they, ref if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two on of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. This is God's word. Please be seated. Right, as our kids go off uh, to Children's Church, another reminder, this uh, I believe is their last Sunday learning about uh, some Old Testament stories as it relates to loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and also learning about just an old school term called idolatry. And one of the things I've been introducing you to in our catechism that we use is the New City Catechism. So we say this together. Let's get this on the screen uh, as we define what is idolatry. Do we have that on the screen? There it is. Uh, I can barely see that. Let me look at this one. All right, let's say this together. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our well-being and happiness, significance, and security. So that's what they're learning about, uh, but they're also learning it mainly through stories in the Old Testament and the scriptures about how that occurs in very specific ways. Uh, again, the sermon series that we're in the middle of right now is the Out of Context Sermon Series, and what we're doing is we're looking at various scripture verses that are commonly taken out of context, and this isn't to get you to be like uh, discouraged about maybe ways that we misunderstand scripture, but to really see the richness of studying the Word of God and richness of looking at the scriptures within context so that we can see how to understand a verse in a way that it was meant to be understood and apply it appropriately as well. So the text that we're looking at today uh, is another one from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 18, verse 20, and that specific verse is this one, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So we are going to look at that verse today. Before we get to it, though, let's pray. Lord, thank you again for gathering these saints, for gathering your sons and daughters in this place uh, to focus on your son, Jesus Christ, and his gospel. We know, Lord, that you are here, that your spirit is um, poured out into each one of our lives because of the faith we have in Christ. We pray, Lord, that uh, your spirit will work in this moment throughout the service, through the songs, through the prayers, through the table, through the preaching, Lord. May you nourish us and encourage us and build our faith and give us hope as we consider, Lord, what your word says. And especially, Lord, help us to be grateful uh, for this community of faith where we can lean into accountability and friendship and fellowship with one another so that we can point each other to the straight and narrow path. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So what is a church? Or what are the marks of a church? If you were to see a church in the wilderness, how could you identify whether or not it's a church? And trying to answer this question, many Christians will uh, cite this verse, Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am 
with them. That's a very common verse that's quoted when trying to define what a church is. And it seems pretty straightforward, right? The verse is saying that if you have a couple Christians, two or three specifically, it can be that small. When they get together in the name of Jesus, Jesus is there. The presence of Christ is there. He shows up. So what do you have? You have a church. And so is that what a church is? Maybe to get more specific, if you have two or three Christians in a coffee house, do you have a church? Do they have to talk to one another for it to be a church? Do they have to drink coffee for it to be a church, for Jesus to be present there? Maybe you have to have coffee for Je- just to have the awareness that Jesus is there, right? What, is that what you have there? Is if you have two or three Christians in a coffee house, you have a church. What about if you watch church online with another person? Does that mean you have a church, that you have Jesus there, you have two people that are Christians, and you're watching a church on a screen? Does that mean you also have another church that you just planted there? Woo! And we can count that as a church plant, right? In your house because you're watching church online. What if you're meeting up with another Christian friend who's from out of town, and you're hanging out at a pub? Do you have yourself a church there because two or three are gathered? What if you're a college student and you're involved in a parachurch ministry? Does that mean you don't need to come to a a gathering like this or become a member of a church because you have your parachurch ministry? That's a view that I held, used to have in college. These are some of the ways that we start to think about what a church is in light of this text. And again, like we've done with all these uh, verses, we're going to look at this verse within the context uh, that Jesus is teaching this. And that will help clarify exactly what a church is and what a church isn't. And if you haven't ever looked at this verse within context, you might be surprised to find out that it's dominated by a topic about church discipline, which I know this is exactly why you wanted to come to church today to be inspired about a sermon about church discipline or accountability. Uh, But that's exactly what we find ourselves looking at when we look at Matthew 18, 20. So let's start to consider the whole context. The context of Matthew 18, the chapter, is a section where Jesus is giving wisdom about how to deal with sin in the church. Verses 10 through 14, for example, includes a parable of a wandering sheep. And that story, that parable, is emphasizing that it's God's will for those who are lost to be found, that you would even, even leave the 99 sheep, if there's one sheep that went astray, that you go and find that sheep so that that person, that sheep, can be restored. And then in verses 21 through 35, right after the section we're looking at, you have another parable. This is the parable of the unmerciful servant, and that emphasizes that it's God's will for his people that they would forgive one another a lot that they would continually do it if somebody is asking for forgiveness. And so between these two parables, you have the teaching we're going to look at today, which is about restoration and forgiveness, because that's kind of in the air around these verses, is in the context around these verses. And specifically, Jesus is answering the question, how do we go about this ministry of restoration and forgiveness? What does that practically look like? Because if you try this in your personal life, it's difficult, it's intimidating, it's not necessarily fun to participate in church discipline, which I know is not just this amazing word that we're going to market and now have this big attractional ministry. We practice church discipline, right? But it's getting at this idea that that's what you want in any household. If a parent loves their kids, you want loving discipline. You don't want to be too strict, but you also don't want to be uninvolved and too loose. It's loving discipline is a way that you do community with one another in a way that practices the way of Jesus Christ. 
So Jesus knows that we need, we need this teaching. We need directions in matters of accountability, discipline, restoration, and forgiveness. And the reason why is we just don't do it well. We mess it up all the time. Often when we see sin in somebody else's life or when someone sins against us, we respond in ways that really avoid both accountability or restoration and restoration. Some of these examples that I'm thinking of of how we do this in an unhelpful way, sometimes we see sin and we ignore it. We sweep it under the rug. There's no accountability. There's no approach. There's no conversation. You just ignore it. Another way that we uh, practice this in a way that's not, uh, not helpful is that we offer maybe grace without accountability. That you say, oh, I forgive you, I forgive you, but in reality, this person's not repented. This person has not owned up to what that person has done, but you granted forgiveness without any type of accountability rebuke or pointing people to the way of life. So those are some ways that you don't do accountability well, but we also sometimes, when we do accountability, might do it poorly. We not only avoid accountability, but we do it poorly by maybe telling everybody, except for the person you need to talk to, right? Everybody else finds out about it, all these side conversations, rather than the person that you actually need to approach and have this conversation with. Or maybe another way that we poorly uh, participate in accountability is by overreacting. Rather than maybe having an initial conversation at a level that's a little bit more private, you go for it and you have a protest, right? You get, you get the pickets, you go down to like Stubman and Snelling, that's an active place for protests, right? And you just let the world know about it if somebody has sinned against you or maybe a common way to do it, you just go right for it on social media and let everybody else know. So you overreact in how you do accountability or discipline. None of these examples that I just gave you are driven by Christian love. Leviticus 19, 17 through 18 includes uh, the second greatest commandment, but the context of it reads like this. Verse 17, Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly, so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And that's one of the many practical ways that this text uh, flushes out the great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. And, and then this immediate context is talking about accountability. One of the ways that you show love of your neighbor is by dealing with your neighbor's sin, like the people of God's sin. You don't hold a grudge, it says. You don't hold hate in your heart or you seek revenge. Rather, you go to that person to rebuke them driven by love, love to see forgiveness and restoration happen. Last week, I quoted uh, Galatians 5, 19 through uh, 6-1, which lists all these types of like sins that can be in the people of God that you should confront and then point them to the fruit of the Spirit. To remind you of those verses, it says, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, Fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's how high the stakes are. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things there is no law. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin... 
You who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. So what do you see if you see somebody that's caught up in acts of the flesh? Flesh here means your, your nature, that part of you that's, that, that's inclined to temptation and sin. Well, this text says you do something about it. And as I said last week, some things on the list is like, yeah, you, I would hope that you would confront somebody that's caught up in witchcraft, right, or drunkenness or orgies. You probably should say something about it, right? And that's a pretty obvious maybe reaction to somebody that's participating in these things. But it also names vices and acts that are pretty common, creating disunity, inability to control one's anger, someone who's overworking, someone who's dividing and gossiping. Now, these are also things that deserve confrontation from somebody who's seeking to restore out of love. And it's not just about noting those things and rebuking somebody who's caught up in those things, but pointing them to the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, forbearance, and so on that you want them to turn from these destructive ways and to the pathway of peace and love that, that is where the Spirit reigns. So what do you do if you see somebody who's caught in sin and not turning away, if they're caught up in something that's destroying them? And Jesus here in the text of Matthew 18 lays out these practical steps of how to participate in church discipline. So here are his steps. The first one is in verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Just between the two of you, if they listen to you, you have won them over. So the first step is for you to go and point out their faults. Don't ignore it and don't go nuclear right away, right? You go and you approach them, just the two of you, that's the first step. And you see what happens. And Jesus says, if they listen to you, you have won them over. That's a good thing. Listen here isn't just simply understanding what you said. If you've ever asked a roommate or your child to do something and they don't do it, what do you say? You're not listening to me, meaning that you didn't, it isn't just about processing information, but you didn't do the thing that I asked you to do. You're not listening to me. So if they do listen, it means that they not only heard what you said, but they responded appropriately. That's what this first step is saying. Well, what if you, you've done this? Maybe you've done this multiple times, not just once, but you've, you've tried to try it again and try it again, that you approach this person and they are not listening to you and they are still caught up in their sin. This is what Jesus says in verse 16 for a second step. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, more people are starting to get involved, a couple more. And Jesus references an Old Testament passage, Deuteronomy 19.15, and that passage is about establishing credible accusations in a judicial sense. But Jesus is now applying it here to these interpersonal relationships. He's applying that same principle right here. He's saying, bring one or two others so that you have a witness about this conversation that you're having where you're trying to hold this person accountable, but they are refusing to listen. Bring someone else with to witness that you're, you're, you're pleading with this person, that you're, you're giving them gospel truth, that you're doing it out of humility and love. Get a witness there so that they can see that this person is not listening. But it's also another benefit other than just maybe providing an eyewitness to what's going on, right? Sometimes having somebody else there might 
be able to give you some insight of maybe not only how the person that you're trying to say this to, rebuke, is not listening to you, but sometimes, like, if you're doing it, your friend might say, like, well, I don't think you're, 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 you're doing this out of humility. You're so harsh with it. And, and, then, and then it provides another voice, another way to maybe uh, for this person to hear gospel truth and to be pointed back to the Holy Spirit in a way that they might hear it from this other person, but they won't hear it from you. Although it's not specified, it's likely implied that the person that you're bringing in this situation is likely in a position to help, and that's really important. How do you know who to bring with? How do you, you ever ask that question? Like you're, you're, you're having this conversation with somebody, they're not listening, they're still destroying themselves. Like what, how, who, who, who's going to have your back in that situation? And likely what's implied here is that this is a, a person, and this is who you choose, somebody who's in a position to help. In this situation, it might be like a good friend of this person. Maybe, maybe if you're in a small group, it might be the small group leader. Or maybe, again, it's in a church context, it likely could be like a church leader, a deaconess, or an elder that you're bringing with. This is somebody that's in a position that has wisdom, credibility, integrity, maybe relational capital with this person that they can really do something about it. They're in a position of help. And that's always a good way that I've distinguished between maybe asking somebody else to be involved and gossiping. Gossiping usually just it, it involves just telling everybody and you don't really care like who knows. That's very different than reaching out to somebody that's in a position to help because that is driven by I want this person restored. It's not a, just about trying to undermine somebody or just try to get information out there. That's gossiping. This is different because you're turning to somebody who's in a position to help, a friend of this person, somebody that's, that's in a church leadership position over this person, somebody with integrity or knowledge about how to, to urge people to come back to the gospel. That's the person you're bringing with because that person is in the position to help, and that's the two or three that you bring with. Now, we get in a situation that even then, you might find yourself in a position where the person is not listening to you, not listening to the church leaders that you brought. So then what do you do after multiple attempts of this approach? Jesus says in Matthew 18, 17, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. Here, this is, this is important. The word church is used, and this is only a couple times that it's used in all of the Gospels. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it's used quite regularly, but here it's unique. The Gospels don't use the word church very often. And here it's being used in its most basic meaning. It hasn't developed theologically as the, as, as the word develops in the rest of the New Testament. Here, church just means assembly or gathering. That's it. That's the word that could be used. He could have said, tell it, tell it to the assembly or tell it to the gathering. And here's a little like uh, extra credit rant on the word church, okay? I mean, we are doing a sermon series out of, uh, out of context, looking at verses that are taken out of context. I could have done a series that's really nerdy called Exegetical Fallacies, right? Exegesis is like, and I'm quoting a book uh, by one of my seminary professors, Exegesis is trying to, to it's the, it, the art of, of taking from the text what the text means to say. And there's also like logical fallacies, if you ever learned about those, there's also exegetical fallacies, fallacies of the way that we go about uh, interpreting scripture. And one of the common ways that this happens, it's called like a word study fallacy, that you're, you're giving meaning to a word uh, in a way that the New Testament never uses it according to that meaning. And there's a very common way that people define church that is an exegetical word fallacy. Maybe you've heard it before. The Greek word 
for church is ecclesia, and it combines these two words that could literally mean called out ones. So they're saying that the church are, is the called out ones. Now, theologically, that's true, but you don't get that from this word because the problem is, is that word is never used in the New Testament to mean called out ones. Never. It's never used that way. The most generic way that you use that word just simply means it's a gathering of people. It's, a, it's a, an assembly of people coming together. And in this sense, it's this assembly of people that, that claim the name of Christ that are coming together. So that's the step that, that Jesus brings us to. You've tried just the two of you. You've tried involving other people that are in a position to help. That isn't helping. And now you're bringing the matter to the gathering, which is making the point that you're making it even more public. This sin that the person is refusing to repent of is going to impact not just you or that person, but the reality, and this is what this, this, this verse is getting at, it, it, it impacts the whole gathering. What this person does isn't just a private thing that's usually kept to himself or herself. It will have the, 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 the possibility of impacting the whole gathering, and so now the stakes are even higher. The whole gathering is informed about the sin, this destructive thing going on in their midst. Now, how do you apply this in a contemporary sense, a contemporary setting like this? Because this step does not necessarily mean that the church makes a Sunday announcement uh, right in the morning, like, uh-oh, Tommy and Katie, they went in, they, they broke in and looted uh, the Speedway, right? On Cleveland and, and, and Grand Avenue, we just make an announcement. It's just like we have a ministry, uh, neighborhood ministry class called Blockbusters. You know, we have that going on. We have some men's ministry. And oh, by the way, Tommy and, and Katie, they really messed up. They're looters, really. And you, you, need, to be, you need to be aware of that. Is that, how, you know, is that, that's, is that the appropriate application? Or do we post it on social media? Not just our private Facebook group, but maybe on the public stream, just letting everybody know, right, what Tommy and Katie does. No, probably not. That's probably not an appropriate way to carry out this step. The point certainly is, is that the visibility of the issue has increased, but your context really should determine how you go about it, and even just a little bit of wisdom. Maybe this step is likely just to include like all of the elders and the deaconesses or maybe the group or ministry that this person's in, a part of that's going to have the direct, the, the biggest impact, that you start in that, those settings and make it more public in that sense. And most of the time, that's where it kind of stays. It doesn't come to a Sunday morning. It doesn't come to a social media post. But I, I want to be clear that there might be situations where that's warranted, but it's very, very few. And if it were ever to warrant something on that, that public level, it would mean it's because the person involved that's not repenting of their sin is likely in a position of oversight that impacts the whole assembly or the entire ministry or maybe has a very uh, a public platform that needs to be recognized so that more and more people need to understand that. For most people, that's not the case. Your, your, your impact is, is very limited to maybe a small group or a ministry and so on. But like elders and pastors, well, maybe that should be more public. But anyways, I think that's an important type of nuance because I've seen this verse misapplied in ways that are just very unwise and unhelpful in, a, in an effort to seek to be faithful to the text where I think Jesus is again giving us some general wisdom that we have to do the hard work of understanding when it starts to get more public, what does that look like? Now, if you got to that point, all right, you try to confront this person, just the two of you, then you brought in some people that are in position to help, 
Then you brought in the entire group of people that are going to be impacted by this person's sin that needs to know about it. You made it very, very public. In a ministry, in a group, all the church leaders know about it. And then the person still isn't going to turn from the destruction of the flesh to the fruit of the Spirit. They're still not repenting. What is the final step? Jesus says that in the rest of verse 17. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. What does it mean to treat somebody as a pagan or a tax collector? Well, it's like maybe how a Vikings fan treats a Packers fan. It's kind of like the same thing. It's just this, it's this category of people that it's just like you're on the outside of this now. You've went from maybe being part of the fellowship to now being an opponent. That The nature of our relationship has changed. It means to treat them, to say it a different way, as someone who isn't a Christian, as someone who needs to repent, to turn to Jesus for forgiveness, and needs to seek to restore the harm that their destructive sin is causing. It means to disassociate with somebody, or an old school church term is excommunicate somebody. But even that is sometimes misunderstood. What does it look like to treat somebody uh, as a pagan or tax collector to excommunicate that, that person. What does that mean? It means that you are recognizing, this is the way I put it, you are recognizing that your relationship has changed. From it, that you used to be in fellowship with this person, used to worship Jesus with them, used to be on the same page of what it means to, to pursue fruits of the Spirit and to, to combat or repent and confess your sins. But because this person refuses to acknowledge that the destructive sin that they're involved in is, is, is something that is leading them away from the gospel, you have to recognize because of that that they are denying an essential core component of what it means to be a Christian, that the nature of your relationship is now changed. That you can't have fellowship with this person the way you had fellowship before. You can't come to the Lord's table with somebody that is in unrepentive sin and refuses to turn back to grace and forgiveness. You cannot participate in worship like you have before because this person is not worshiping Jesus with a repented, humble heart. What this doesn't mean is that it does not necessarily mean that you stop talking to the person altogether. You recognize that the relationship has changed, but one of the ways that you show that the relationship has changed is that now you start to essentially evangelize the person. Even if you had Christian fellowship with that person before, what they need right now is the straight-up gospel. They need to hear that your sin is destroying you and others around you, and you need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Which is just like, and they might be like, hey, I know about all that stuff. And it's like, clearly you don't. Because as Jesus says, you're not listening. So that's the nature of the relationship has changed. And one of the ways you, it changes is that you, you, you probably don't pray with that person anymore. Or you break bread and drink the cup with that person anymore. Or do Bible study with that person in the same sense anymore. Because now the relationship has changed is where you're pleading with them to come back to the Lord Jesus. And being in ministry uh, for as long as I have now, uh, well over a decade, this, this, when this happens, it's not just like, oh, well, this is a soul-destroying activity. Have you ever had somebody in your life where this has happened to you? Where you had this rich 
fellowship with somebody in the Lord Jesus, and then they just get caught up in this idea or caught up in this lifestyle, and then they just, they don't listen to you anymore, even though you're pleading with them to come back to truth and forgiveness and the way of peace, but they don't do it. And you try, you try different steps and you go through. This is a, this is a heartbreaking reality of Christian fellowship when we lose our brothers and sisters in Christ to sin or false beliefs. And there are many people, me included and perhaps you, that have deep abiding scars from this. And that's the reality of church uh, community is that this is something that's a part of our experience. This is not a pleasant thing, but it's a necessary thing that happens in church life. Now, those are the steps that Jesus gives us to dealing with this heartbreaking reality. And then we finally have now the context to look at verse 20 in. Let's look at the verse uh, that I mentioned at the very beginning now. Let's look at Matthew 18, 18 through verse 20, which is the verse that we're zeroing in on. This is what he says in light of these steps. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And here's the verse. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. These verses are saying that the authority to discipline an unrepentant Christian carries the backing of God. That's the point of that verse. That the the authority to discipline an unrepentant Christian carries the backing of God. When somebody confronts you for their sin, and especially bringing other Christian leaders or maybe other people in a position to help with them, they're not just presenting to you a human opinion or that this is a human action alone. Jesus is saying this is more weightier than that. What's happening in this situation is that I am showing up in a unique way and that my authority is approving what these Christians are trying to carry out by my will. That's what verse 20 is saying. It's saying that Jesus shows up, but it's saying that he doesn't just show up in a general sense, like Psalm 139 says that you can't flee the presence of God, or in the Great Commission, Jesus says that, uh, for I'll be with you always, even to the ends of the earth. Uh, Those are verses that, yes, Jesus shows up with each individual believers in a unique way. We are the temple of God, we have the Holy Spirit, but this verse is being more specific than that. This verse is saying that he shows up by giving his authority behind the action that you're doing to hold this person accountable for their sin and maybe even if it leads to uh, disassociating fellowship with that person, that Jesus is approving that action as well. That's the specific sense that this verse is used in. He's given us the authority through the faithful actions of these Christians to lovingly rebuke a brother and sister in Christ. And it raises this question, so does that mean this verse has no bearing on being able to know what a church is or define a church, the mark of a church? And I actually think this verse in context does give us a very important way to understand what a true and healthy church is. One of the most helpful definitions for uh, a church or to see the marks of a church so you can recognize a church comes from this really old confession. And this is uh, from Article 29 in this confession. I believe it will be on the screen. I'll read this to you. 
This confession says the marks by which the true church is known are these. One, if the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein. Two, if it maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ. And three, this is key for our text today, if church discipline is exercised in punishing sin. What are the marks of a true church? How do you know if you're part of a church? Is it at the online community and the privacy of your home? No, that's not church. Church is, is marked by at least these three things, that the gospel is preached, the ordinances and sacraments are practiced, and church discipline is exercised, which means you've got to show up. You've got to be around people. The context of Matthew 18, therefore, help, helpfully expands this, especially that last point, that, the church, that church discipline is exercised by punishing sin, so therefore that's a mark of the church. Matthew 18 gives us a clear picture of what that means. It means that there are Christians who have such relational depth with one another that they get into each other's business. They get into each other's life because they love one another. Not because they're nosy, but because we know that we are like sheep that go astray and we need to point one another back to the Lord Jesus. It means that a church is where Christians who gather together and worship Jesus and they actually have deep fellowship with one another, so much so that you would have the relational capital to actually go to somebody, to be known by them, and re be rebuked if necessary. It means that the church is organized in such a way that there are church leaders that can be leaning in to help. That's what the mark of a church is. So in a sense, Matthew 18.20 does tell us something about the church, but not the verse isolated by itself, but in context, it means a big distinguishing mark of a healthy church is it's a church where there's accountability, where you know one another, where you know the gospel well, where you fellowship around this Lord's table, and then your heart breaks in those situations where maybe somebody has to leave the table because they no longer follow the ways of Jesus. Again, as I mentioned, this is not a theoretical thing. This is something that a healthy church uh, practices. And I want to close with a story about um, one, of the, one of the ways that this has happened here. And many people I know uh, throughout the years just say, like, hey, this seems like a very healthy church. There's not a lot of division. Uh, it seems to be really, really, really uh, held together. And that's true, and that we praise God by his grace that that's been the case. But that doesn't mean we haven't faced situations where we've had to do church discipline or accountability. Most of the time that that happens, it's just in your interpersonal relationships, where somebody's just approaching you and saying, hey, I think you need to lay off work. You're working too much and you're neglecting your friends, you're neglecting your household. It's something like that. And then you're like, oh, I'm, you're right. And usually it's right there. Well, there are other situations where more and more people have to get involved. And I remember one specific situation. And don't try to like go on a witch hunt here to be like, all right, who is he talking about? The person's not here. This was a very, very long ago, time ago. Church, this church was very, very small. Uh, we'll call this person Tommy. And Tommy came uh, from, this isn't the same Tommy that, that uh, looted the convenience store, by the way. Um, <laughs> this is a different Tommy. Um, you know why I use, like, my favorite terms to use in, like, sermon illustrations is Tommy, Katie, and Scott. Do you know why? Anybody? Because of the campuses around here and their mascots. But anyway, um, if I have to make up a name, it's Tommy, Katie, and Scott. Anyway, uh, so in this case, it's Tommy again, right? And so uh, Tommy was coming here, 
getting involved, uh, really starting to, to go all in on Christian community here. Uh, but when I got to know him and his family, one thing that was curious to me was, and that stood out is that he, he came from a very faithful gospel-preaching church locally. And I was just like, well, that's weird. Why would you leave that church? I know the pastor there. pastor's amazing. So like anybody that really has the, such a big view of like it's not just our local church that does good gospel ministry, it's the church throughout the city, it's the church throughout the globe. So it's just like, well, what happened? I know this pastor. I have a personal relationship with him. So I asked him, like, hey, this family is coming uh, to our church, and they just kind of gave a generic reason why they left yours. It doesn't, doesn't really make sense. What's, what's going on? And I found out in that conversation that Tommy is under church discipline from their church, and that's why he left to come to ours. And so I would have not known this because Tommy's not going to tell me. I had to find this out from his previous pastor. And the nature of this was that he had an inappropriate relationship outside of his marriage. That's the nature of why church discipline was happening in the context. So it wasn't even one of those things where we're like, well, I don't know, it was kind of debatable. Like, you can't really church discipline somebody for cheering the Packers, right? It, was not, it wasn't like some weird situation. It was a very, like, yeah, like you weren't faithful, right? You should be under church discipline. So then I remember that I had arranged a week, week night uh, where I had to go to his house and confront him about this. This isn't something like, like you that anybody enjoys doing, but you, you do this, right? And so I went to confront him about it. And he refused to listen. He, he refused to, uh, in this situation, what I wanted him to do is like, you need to go back and finish the discipline process that you were in at this church. You need to reconcile with your family, and also your brothers and sisters in Christ at this previous church before we would even think about you becoming a member here or getting involved in any type of significant way. And I was, was willing after that that we were going to get other people involved if we wasn't going to listen. But what often happens in this situation is that was the last conversation I had with him. Of course, he recognized that, well, if that's what's going to happen here, that they also are going to hold me accountable, he just decided to go to a very large church where he can get lost and not anybody's ever going to approach him about this again. Because that's the nature of Christian community is that we seek to do this for one another. So that my hope in that was that he would be restored, that this would be a story where, where his brothers and sisters in Christ in the previous church were restored and that he was restored with his family, but it didn't go that way because he refused to listen. Now, nobody likes to spend a week, weeknight doing something like this, but why do we do that? Because we go back to the gospel, because Jesus did that to you. At one point in your life, you refused to listen to this offer of grace. You were on a path of destruction, and Jesus and Christ didn't just say like, well, I'm too busy. I don't want to do that. That seems inconvenient. He sought you, he, he's the shepherd that when the one sheep goes, he goes to get the sheep to bring it back to the fold. And that's what God does for us. The reason you are here today, that you're in this restored relationship with God and one another, because Jesus went after you. And so what drives our desire to do this in our life, in our church, isn't to just get into each other's business or to be nosy. It's that we want people to have lives that are centered in the gospel, that know his love, that don't go down paths of destruction away from Jesus, but go on paths towards him in life and peace. And that's why we do this. We are driven by the gospel. We are saved by a God who pursues sinners. So do the same thing in the relationships in your life. Go pursue the people in your life that are starting to run away from God. 